Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. In this fifth season, I'll be exploring how we can change the ways in which we relate to and structure our existing systems so that we can build towards a more resilient future. From alternative economic models and business practices to our role in and perception of the more than human world, this season will explore how we might design ways of living that both enrich and sustain all forms of life, not just our own. For more information, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today's guest is Ebony Bailey, the Communications Manager for the Institute for Ecological Civilization, also known as ECOCIV, an organization whose mission is to promote civilizational change for the long-term well-being of people and the planet. Working with allies and global leaders to design solutions for the well-being of the entire web of life, ECOCIV have been able to catalyze groundbreaking explorations of the ways that current systems and structures need to be transformed. Ebony is a researcher, photographer and filmmaker whose work explores cultural intersections, diaspora and food justice, and her interests lie in using communications as a means of telling stories that weave together diverse social causes. She received a BA in journalism at USC and recently completed her master's thesis documentary project at the National Autonomous University of Mexico. This is a really interesting conversation for me, and I hope you find it as illuminating as I did. So, Ebony, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. (laughs) So, from your perspective right now, and you can take this conversation or this question in whatever direction you want, what do you think may be happening in the global human psyche? Wow, that's a really interesting question. I think that, especially this year in 2020, I think there is like a collective understanding that things need to change. Obviously, there are still people out there that that really don't have that, I heard, who don't have that consciousness. But I think in general, there's like a much wider collective understanding that that things need to change, that a lot of systems that we have in the world are failing us. And it kind of, I know a lot of negative things, a lot of traumatic things have happened this year, but I also have seen a lot of people come together, a lot of people taking care of each other, and just like a lot of hope in general. And I think that that's that's kind of, at least, I think that's like my idealistic side <laughs> um, <laughs> of where I see at least like the global, I don't know if this really answers your question, but like the global human psyche, I see it more in like this mm. collective consciousness of systemic change. And that's something that we're really trying to to tap into with Ecosiv because we're an organization that focuses on systemic change. Mm. That was a beautiful answer. Thank you. And I'd love to ask you a little bit more about your role. So you work as communications manager at the Institute for Ecological Civilization, an organization that, as you say, promotes civilizational change for the long term well-being of the people and the planet. Can you tell us a little bit more about what an ecological civilization is? 
Yeah, that's that's a great question. I feel like that's something that <laughs> we normally get a lot when people first get close to our organization and look into our work. And it's like, what exactly is a, an ecological civilization? So for me, I would say an ecological civilization is a world in which human communities and our systems um, are designed to promote an overall well-being of the people on the planet and also a world where, in which human communities live in harmony with our surrounding environment. So instead of humans extracting the land, humans are coexisting with the lands. We're living in harmony with the land. We're living in harmony with other species. And it's just organizing our world in a way in which our communities really can coexist with the natural world. And also an ecological civilization, like the grand vision of it all is just a vision for a sustainable and just society and one where we can all thrive. And when I say we can all thrive, I include humans and also non-human species and the environment and our natural world. Mm. So that's what I see as an ecological civilization. I think also in order to work towards an, an ecological civilization, we do have to look at the ways that systems are failing us and look at the root into why they're failing us. Um, and I think that that's really key for us to work toward an ecological civilization. So let's talk a little bit about those places where systems are failing us, or perhaps systems overall, because sometimes there are entire systems that are interwoven and based on values that maybe themselves are founded on using the world as a resource, on extractionism, etc. Where do you see the biggest issues with the systems that we currently have in terms of preventing us from reaching this goal of ecological civilization? So I think when we look at the issues, at least ecosiv as a whole, we kind of have some core focus areas at the moment into where we look at these issues. The first core focus area is global water solutions. Mm -hmm. And that kind of goes back to the idea that water, this is really common, I feel like in in a lot of these spaces is that water is life. We also like to say that water is well-being mm. because water is a means for us to do everything else we want to in life. When we have access to clean water, or we have opportunities to, to cook, to further our education, to practice spiritual spiritual traditions or just cultural traditions uh, is our it's our means for hydration so water just plays a lot of different roles in our life and so we like to say that water is a means for us to do whatever we want to in life mm. and I think that that's the that's one of the key reasons why we've focused on water kind of specifically as a core focus area another big area for us is the economy I think that especially in 2020 we see how the current system of the economy how it's revealed the extremities of what the current economy is mm. and so when we think about transforming economies we think about how can we use the economy to promote well-being and to promote well-being of people on the planet promote life and putting life over profits I think that that's like a, a big thing for us um, and what ways we can use the economy in order to reuse resources, um, to put indexes on well-being, on happiness, and on other things that aren't always just focused on GDP, because I feel like economies these days right now has a big focus on GDP, but does that really mean well-being for everybody, for people on the planet? Mm. And another core focus area we have is reimagining human communities and so this is kind of reimagining how 
we're connected with our planet. We focus on this concept called bioregions. Mm -hmm. And I actually learned about bioregions when I started working for Ecosiv, and it's something that I really got into, and I, I just really find it to be like such a great concept. And a bioregion is a region in which the natural environment kind of separates your geography and not necessarily artificial barriers or artificial borders. I don't know if you're familiar with California, but for example, the Central Coast is a bioregion. California's Central Coast is a bioregion. And although there are different cities and different counties in the Central Coast, they all have these like geographical similarities. Um, and so that's why that is considered a bioregion. And so what we do is think about how we can how we can look at our world in bioregions um, and how looking at our world in bioregions can encourage us to think locally and I think that also thinking locally and acting locally is something that is really big for us especially with reimagining human communities mm. and also looking at the relationship between urban and rural communities because I think a lot of the times they're kind of siloed when we talk about our organization and communities in general but how can urban communities support rural communities how can rural communities support urban communities and so those are things that we that we look into and our fourth core focus area is leading dialogues for systems change so yes. this is kind of our our content area in a way we have this series um, it's called the Ecosiv dialogues on global systems change and we convene global leaders and experts on different subjects so our first our first ever dialogue was actually kind of when COVID was was really starting to happen and when the world was shutting down mm. it was in March and so our first dialogue was the most important lessons for from COVID-19 a global conversation on a global crisis and so it looked at things that we can learn from this crisis things that have been revealed from this crisis. Uh, I remember they were talking about like, you know, we thought it was impossible for the world to shut down, but we see that it is possible now. Mm -hmm. What else can be possible in the world? What uh, what good can be possible in the world? And also thinking about how we've seen people helping each other and things like that in ways that we hadn't seen before. And we have different dialogues that are about transforming economic systems. Uh, we had a dialogue about racism. Mm -hmm. What does a world without racism look like? Uh, because racial justice is also a huge part of working toward an ecological civilization. We can't have an ecological civilization without having equity between all different types of people. Mm. And we've also had dialogues about education um, and and more dialogues about economies. Economies has been like a, a big focus for us in the past couple of months. Those are kind of the key focus areas that we work in. Brilliant. And it's so interesting to hear them as set out as pillars, because obviously these things connect with and influence one another. I actually came across the work that Ecosiv does through the podcast, which is hosted by Andrew Schwartz, which I've been listening to since it came out in 2018. And one of the things I love most about it is the plurality of voices and experiences and stories that it weaves together. And I know this is a very large question, but what are your thoughts about the interplay between the deepest issues we face. So you mentioned systemic racial injustice and, ex well, exclusion of all kinds also, but also to things like biodiversity loss and extractionist systems. How do you conceive of the ways in which these different problems, these deep entrenched problems are coming up right now? Are they connected? Is there something that, that brings them together? Yeah, I definitely think that there's something that brings them together. I think it's I've, I've thought about this kind of a lot. It's interesting, like, when we think of, um, we see this in, like, environmental orgs or 
conservation orgs or just kind of like nature or like nature museums and stuff where they say everything is connected and they're talking about biodiversity, animals, humans and things like that. And when I see that and I see that that's really true and I think it's really beautiful to think in of the world and something that everything is connected. And then when we also look at systems, harmful systems, systems of discrimination, systems of oppression and things like that, we can also see how everything is connected. And so I do think that there is, for example, if we look at the issue of racism, there is a huge connection between racism and environmental disparity. Mm. When we think of the communities that are hardest hit by climate change, there usually are, at least in the U.S., usually are black and indigenous and people of color communities. And even when we look on a global scale, a lot of communities that we see that are the most affected by natural, quote unquote, natural disasters are usually like the most marginalized communities. There's a really good quote that I that I read once that I can't think of off the top of my head, but it has I think it was actually quoted in the Boston Globe, so that's not even the original quote, but it says something like <laughs> <laughs> it says something like Natural disasters are not just natural disasters. They are also social disasters. And then it went into the the earthquake in Haiti that happened in 2020 and how that devastated the country. Mm -hmm. And when we think of like a similar earthquake, if it happened in California or something, obviously it would be devastating. But would it be the same amount of devastation that happened in Haiti, if that makes sense? Mm -hmm. Like, would people be fleeing their country and looking for a life somewhere else because they literally have nowhere to go in their country? And so and so I think when we look at kind of these systems of extraction and things like that, that definitely plays into it plays into how our economic systems work. And then it also plays into how our land is being exploited and how that is contributing to climate change. And so it's just like once you once you see that everything is connected, it makes you think like, wow, this world is super complicated and we have a lot of work to do. But I also think it's kind of Mm. I'm, I'm, I feel like I have just like a really idealistic side of me in general and I think it's like well okay now I know now I know how everything is connected well I don't know everything I'm still learning but like when you when you like have some of one of these like revelations of seeing how one thing is connected to the other you're like now I feel like I have a better toolkit in order to see what we can do about it you know mm. that's kind of how I see it and I think that that's how Ecosiv sees it in general too looking at how these different stories connect how these different issues connect and then seeing how we can envision it so we have like these three things that we like to do um, and it's kind of based off of design so it's visioning backcasting and road mapping so when mm. we think of visioning we think of like for example just ecological civilization generally what does an ecological civilization look like? So in our kind of facilitation spaces, people can write or say what they what they imagine in an ecological civilization. And then from there, what kind of steps can we take, this is backcasting, today to get to that vision that you want? And then road mapping is looking into how we can take those steps. And so these are like the three things that we do in order to actually work toward an ecological civilization. And I think looking at how different things are connected and different systems are connected is really key into working towards that. I wonder, because this is such an interesting and rich and complex and fascinating area. If people who are listening are thinking, well, actually, I'd like to learn more about this because it can feel like quite a huge territory to venture out into where would you suggest is a good place to start in terms of understanding systems and how they interconnect or maybe engaging in that three-step process that you just described i think that this is like a self plug but a plug for (laughs) ecosiv we have a book 
um, that was written by the president and executive vice president. <laughs> I was trying to think of like something that's really general and introductory um, and where you don't yeah. have to go to different different spaces to look for it. And so I feel like this book is actually like a good, a kind of like a good intro into what an ecological civilization could look like. Um, it's called What is Ecological Civilization? Crisis, Hope, and the Future of the Planet. It's by our mm. president, Philip Clayton, and executive vice president, Andrew Schwartz. And it goes into kind of eight key questions and drawing answers from philosophy, science, system thinking, um, and answering kind of these eight key questions on what is ecological civilization. And so I think that that would be like a good place to start. If you want to go somewhere, kind of look at something that's introductory, but also really comprehensive. And then from there, you can you can go into different, different sources. Brilliant. I'm going to add that to my reading list. Yes. <laughs> I think especially because it can be it can be so easy to feel overwhelmed and even despondent or apathetic in the face of such a huge task of starting to unpick the threads and realizing that they're all connected and then if we really want to make a lasting impact it's going to require a huge commitment in terms of time but also in terms of patience perseverance etc from your personal work as a researcher and a photographer and filmmaker how do you think we might use stories to educate other people and to weave together diverse social causes? Oh, that's such a great question for me. I think storytelling is everything. I think as someone who works especially in like photography, uh, videography, documentary and things like that, I think that storytelling is like a great way to kind of educate um, and I think it really puts a human face on a lot of these issues that we see as just numbers a lot of time or systemic um, and not realizing that systemic issues actually touch human lives. Mm. Uh, and I also think that it's a great way to connect different issues. An example of just like a recent project that I that I did in my own film project um, that has to do with the Afro roots in Mexico and also food and looking at one of the most popular foods in Mexico um, and realizing that it's actually from Africa. And so I feel like that's kind of the type of work that kind of connects two issues together, which is like racial issues and food, um, things that mm. maybe someone wouldn't really connect right away. But I think that that's like a great way, storytelling, documentary, is a great way to, to connect different issues together as well. And I think that when you when we look at, when we, for example, when we look at storytelling, when we look at the life of someone or the human face of someone we see like all of the different things that they live through and all of the different issues that mm. that touch their lives or all of the different things that they're interested we see firsthand how everything is connected just through one person and i think that that's kind of the beauty of of storytelling or even within a narrative like weaving together how different things are connected uh, for me it's just like the human aspect or maybe even not necessarily the human aspect thinking also about that project again like the human aspect and how we're we're connected with our with our surrounding environment. Um, in that case, in that project, it was with food. But storytelling is a really powerful way for us to build bridges and not only build bridges with other humans, but also build bridges with with our natural world and with other species. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we look at like when we look at like indigenous communities around the world. There's a huge aspect of storytelling. There's huge oral traditions. And a lot of times these oral traditions weren't just oral in the sense that it wasn't just talking. It was also dancing. It was also using, I don't want to say the word props, but I can't think of a, a word right now, but kind of using what they had, they had around them as quote unquote props in order to tell their stories. And I think that that's just like, that's just also like a beautiful example of, of 
weaving together different things in order to tell a story and then using that story in order to pass down to the, the next generations so that they have a worldview of what they live in. And so, yeah, I think storytelling is one of the most powerful ways that we can work toward a better world, work toward the well-being for people on the planet, work toward an ecological civilization, and just and just connect with each other and, again, like take care of each other raise this like collective consciousness that that we really we really are what we have and we need to take care of each other and take care of the world mm. do you think there's something that you're starting to see now maybe a and I'm, I'm asking rather a leading question because I'm certainly noticing in my spheres that there's more of an interest in this are you finding where you are that there is a kind of resurgent interest in things like folk tales or old songs that may have been passed down or searching for traditional narratives that might kind of verge on the fairy tale on the on the more than human or the maybe the supernatural are you seeing any trends towards that because where I am and in my spheres I'm seeing so many more people write stories about our connections with nature with otherness with transcendence of a very kind of biological and intimate kind. I don't know if that's something that you're also witnessing or if it's just <laughs> me and my little bubble. No, I do think that there is kind of a resurgence. I think of when I when I I've seen it I've seen it a lot like in terms of like connecting with the ancestors and things like that. I also even have seen it like in spaces of design. I was thinking specifically of a book that we actually profiled in our in our podcast, in the Ecoswift podcast. It's mm. called Low Tech Design by Radical Indigenism. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a really good book. Uh, I really recommend it, too. And so the author, Julia Watson, she goes all over the world and profiles a, a bunch of kind of indigenous, nature-based designs from a lot of different communities in, like, 70 countries, I believe, um, indigenous communities. Wow. But a lot of times, kind of the relationship, for example... Uh, that a community has with agriculture is based off of a story that their ancestors told them or that their mom told them. And so even the way that we think of design is somehow based off of some story that someone's told us or something that's been passed down to us. And I think that's also just like a really beautiful way of like connecting with the land, connecting with each other, seeing that everything that we make has like a greater purpose even if that purpose is just taking care of each other or even if that greater purpose is is metaphored through a story you know um i think looking at greater purpose in ways that isn't just what we normally think of when we think of greater purpose uh when we think of kind of helping each other collective responsibility and all of that stuff that's what i think of when i think of how we can design these elements or how we can work with each other um, to create a better future for everybody. Mm, that's fascinating. And that book sounds absolutely extraordinary. Um, it's funny because the other books that I've found to be particularly captivating and moving, actually, in many ways, have also been written by women. I've also read a, a couple of phenomenal books by guys, but there was one which came back in, that came out in the 90s by a lady called Clarissa Pincola Estes, and she wrote... Um, it's a fantastic book, quite a large one, called Women Who Run With the Wolves, Contacting the Power of the Wild Woman, which goes through all of these different collected stories from all kinds of different cultures that, that relate the human and the kind of human psyche, especially for women, back to these archetypes that can be found embodied in the land and embodied in relationships with wildness. Another one that I read, which was really beautiful, was by Robin Wall Kimmerer, an ecologist and um, a woman who teaches indigenous science and traditional 
ecology, and it was called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is another just astoundingly beautifully written book. And then another lady called Sharon Blackie, who wrote The Enchanted Life, whose, whose work in mythology and psychology is just wonderful. Are there any others that have really touched you that you cherish, that you, that you would recommend? Um, I feel like I'm a big fan of historical fiction. I definitely, that book, the, the book that I mentioned, Low Tech, designed by radical indigenism, um, is like a not, not fiction. It's like going and profiling different communities, but it's just really good and it makes you think of makes you rethink like mythology and all of that stuff but one book that that i just personally really like is called homegoing by yagyasi and it's about so i'm african-american and mexican-american but but um this book is specifically kind of about like connecting africa to the diaspora and specifically the u.s and it's about two half sisters from west coast cape coast um which is now ghana and one, they don't know each other. One half-sister is married off into to a British colonialist, and the other half-sister is sold into slavery. And so each chapter follows their descendants up until present day. And so one line goes U.S., all the U.S. descendants, and then one line goes all of the African descendants up until present day. And the book just, like, interweaves the U.S.-Africa in each chapter. And it's just so beautiful, and it's just... every To everybody, I've recommended this book... Um, two, they've like binged it in a day or binged it in two days. <laughs> it made me think of like where where do I come from? Maybe I have like some long lost cousin in in uh, in West Africa somewhere or something like that. But I think even if you're not if you're not part mm. of the African diaspora, it's still really touching. I have a lot of friends who aren't part of the African diaspora who still loved the book just because of how beautiful it's written and like all of the history that you get out of it too. And it does even talk about a lot like the connection with the land, mm. especially in the Africa chapters. It talks about the importance of harvest, how the extraction of harvest really hurt or damaged communities and it's all fiction but the way that she just incorporates history with fiction is just so beautiful and so I definitely recommend that book. It's been my favorite book of all time for the past year or two. Oh wow. Yeah I, I, I hyped that book up a lot and I think it's funny because when I was reading reviews about the book uh, people were saying oh my gosh this book is so hyped up and usually hyped up books are not are not good and then when they read it they're like yeah. no this book lives up to the hype <laughs> <laughs> so i recommend that book a lot too i think it's really beautiful and it talks for me it, it was also one of those moments where i was like wow everything really is connected like mm -hmm. even though i've born and raised in the u.s and my and the african-american side of my family has been in the u.s for generations we still have a connection with the continent and so that just for me also reaffirmed this whole notion of everything is connected um how can we work together for a better world, for the well-being of people on the planet. That sounds like an amazing story. And I think especially, because often when people talk about their family tree, the, the lineages that we might belong to, it's amazing how different the responses can be when you ask someone, how much do you know about your ancestors? And I think at some point, I don't know for me, because my family comes from different continents my mother's side is mixed middle eastern and european and my father's side has different varieties of european but then my grandmother grew up in morocco so there's kind of the kind of connections that weave to all sorts of different lands and places and it's something which i think if we lose the stories of the people who stood behind us who gave rise to us then somehow it kind of cuts this thread of knowledge or connection and i feel like we're the poorer for it i think there's something which 
gets lost that's actually very powerful. And I'm not wanting to romanticize ancestry too much, but I think that all the trials and tribulations that people face, all the migrations that happened, all the traveling, all the the food and the um, cultural rights that arose from the different places where we were and where we called home, it's just there's such a rich aspect that comes from that of identity. And there are so many threads that weave these different experiences and stories together. I always, I don't know, I find the whole... Um, the whole question opens up such an interesting landscape of possibility. You know, what does your ancestral line teach you about how to live, etc. Um, so I'm definitely going to be getting that book. You're giving me this whole amazing <laughs> set of things to check out <laughs> over Christmas. So um, I'd like to weave into a different direction and ask maybe from your perspective what you feel the greatest challenges that we face in this moment. Wow, that's a great question. What do I think is the greatest challenge? Huh, I think maybe, I mean, I'm probably coming from, like, a U.S.-centric viewpoint here, um, but I think that, honestly, I feel like, like, the individualistic culture that we have in the U.S., especially, specifically, I feel like that's a big challenge because it's, it's part of something that's institutional and part of something that, that is connected with a lot of other systems of economic systems of like I need to make the most for myself and I feel like that I look at that as like even in countries of mm. GDP and I need to GDP is you know this country needs to make the most um, and so I feel like that this like structural diffusion of I need to make the most like gets ingrained into us all in this like individualistic culture and I think it's definitely fine and I think it's it's also admirable to be independent and self-sufficient and things like that but I also think that we should never forget about our communities we should never forget about helping each other out um and i'm just even seeing it like in the pandemic you know there's like a huge movement in the u.s um of people who who don't just want to do something as simple as wearing a mask to help their fellow person um who might be more vulnerable to to the the virus um and i think that that also just kind of boils mm -hmm. down to this like individual notion of freedom that we have when I think that we sh we could also look at freedom in like a in like a collective stance like what can we do together um in order to work towards a collective idea of freedom you know and so I think that for mm -hmm. me like the whole individualistic culture is like a it's like a big challenge because it's something that we've really internalized and a lot of these like systemic issues that we that we're talking about and these systemic issues that we're trying to challenge do require collective work and require working together um and so how do we kind of balance how do we balance like obviously being independent being self-sufficient but also working with each other helping each other out collective responsibility mm. That's a really powerful one. It's very interesting when you start to drill into the cultural context of how people have responded over the last year with the pandemic. So I'm living in Barcelona in Spain, and the response, at least in my little neck of the woods, has been very pro-social. And it's super interesting to contrast that to, to the approaches that have been kind of taken by parts of my home country, which is the UK, especially in London, North London, where I was born. Yeah, over there, I was speaking to friends, they were saying maybe 10% of people were wearing masks, whereas in Spain, the compliance rate, certainly where I live, is, is much, much higher. And I'm so keenly aware of how much difference in behaviour we can see, depending on the cultural context of the people where you're trying to get certain things to, to pass. Um, and the kind of incentives that will motivate 
people within certain cultures versus others. It's, it's a really rich, I guess, quite a complicated area. Where do you think maybe then the greatest opportunity for positive change is right now? Um, I personally think that it is in collaboration. It is in working with each other, taking care of each other. It is in community. Um, at EcoCiv, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, we, we would write a lot about the importance of community, the importance of helping each other out. And I think that that's kind of where I see the biggest possibilities for social change. We just also recently had, it's called the We All Hub Lunch, and it's in partnership with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance. Um, and we were in California, and we kind of did this two-hour facilitation with people from all different sectors uh, in California and talked about what does well-being look like in California. And what I really liked about that session was that we invited people from from all different parts of California. California is like a really long state and so it's just a really big in general and there's a lot of different regions um, and also from different sectors, people from the business sector, people from nonprofits, people from uh, who work in climate change or climate justice and things like that. And so I think that it was cool. One of the things that came out of it, at least in, in my session that I was in, in my in the group that I was in, was that we were, we were talking about like what kind of steps can we take now um, in order to get to a vision of well-being in California. And one of the participants said that we can, in this group that we have now, we can do cross-fertilization. And I really like that word, cross-fertilization. Um, <laughs> and she was talking about how she can work for example, in in the public sector, and she can work with someone in the business in the private sector, and they can kind of cross fertilize their their experiences, their ideas, their thoughts, kind of their different viewpoints to being from different sectors and seeing what can come out of that. So I really liked that word, mm. and I also think, just think it's really fitting uh, with like what we do. So that's kind of yeah. That's I think that for me personally, that's the biggest thing that I that I see. That's kind of also the most tangible change that I see too in the moment is like when I see people taking care of each other or people helping each other out tangible in the sense that that those those acts of community really can turn into something more institutional um so yeah that's what I think mm. and so do you think as part of that change do you think we also need to change how we relate to the natural world and our understanding of our yes, world within it definitely I think that <laughs> I think that's, that's also part of community. When we think of community, we oftentimes, and I'm definitely also guilty of this, uh, growing up in like a human-centric world, we think of our community with our with our fellow people, you know, and we don't think of how we can be in community with, with our natural world, with the plants that surround us, with the species that surround us. Our, you know, mm. I try to think of, like, rethink the ways that we think of community, and then I think of like, well, you know, our dogs are also part of our community, um, and like just reframing things that we already do do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, trying to reframe it into this larger vision of ecological civilization, but I do think that we definitely need to to change the way that we relate, or that we even think that we relate with the land. I think that especially nowadays and especially in the US we see we see land as something that we can extract and something that we can use and we don't see land as something that coexists with us and something that also feeds us we have to feed the land as much as it feeds us and it goes back to water we have and water is also like a similar thing 
I'm from a, a region of California that's really dry. My The neighborhood I grew up with ran out of water for a number of years, a few years ago. Oh, wow. And some of the people in my neighborhood still don't have water. And so I think of that, too, of, like, so much just use of the water without thinking of what the water could do for us mm. or what we can do for the water mm. just leads to this, leads to scarcity leads to inaccessibility, insecurity. And one of the people that we've collaborated with in our in our dialogues said, if we take care of the water, the water takes care of us. And that quote has just always stuck with me for um, the amount of months. I don't remember how. It was like, I was at least like four months ago when he said that. His name's Hank Ovink. And that just really stuck with me. It's like, this is a mutual relationship. We can't just see our, our natural world as something that we can use and extract um, we also have to see our our world as something that coexists with us, and how we can we can start to establish a mutual relationship with our world, um, and not just something that we use and that we're on top of. Yeah, so interesting, and especially you know you're pointing out the importance of the relationship. I think when we objectify the living world that we inhabit, and we don't have more subjective relationship with, for instance, the water or with the trees or with the earth. We kind of use it as a backdrop for our human narratives and human lives. It's so much easier to just dismiss it and not to cherish not only the value that we can get from it, like the extractionist aspect you're talking about, but it's also so easy to overlook all of the intangible things that are actually incredibly enriching to human life. So the beauty of sitting underneath a tree on a hot day and just being able to read a book under the shade, you know, things like this that maybe we just don't even think about, but if they were absent, we would miss them dearly. Yeah, exactly. And I think that kind of goes back to the importance of storytelling. Like a lot of, because this is also something that I'm just getting into, but I was reading a book about kind of the oral traditions in Africa. And it's like, oh, you know, how how did this lake happen? And there's a whole story about the origin of this lake. And I think that those kinds of stories do help us form more intimate relationships with, with the land that's around us, with the things that are around us. And so... I think that, yeah, storytelling is just really important and really powerful and I think really central to the human existence and also the existence of other species that are around us. Mm. I'd also like to ask about capitalist systems, which is something that I am less um, educated about, which is why I kind of want to ask you the question. And many people are starting to ask these sorts of uncomfortable questions about the role that capitalism plays in the destruction of the earth and I wonder maybe what are some of your thoughts on this especially given the work that EcoCiv does on envisioning potentially different economies and models do you think that we can work with and change capitalism or maybe we need to design something completely different I think that there is I'm definitely not like an economy expert um, and <laughs> <Me> so <laughs> I think it's actually been really interesting looking at the different viewpoints on this, especially within our Transforming Dialogue um, series. There was one that we had recently, and one person was saying how we need to like look at the innate failures of our systems and design a completely different system. And then someone else said, yeah, but we also need to just look at how we manage the systems, because what if we designed a completely different system and we managed that badly too, you know? And so mm. um, that that really made me like rethink a lot of things. But I think that definitely the way in which capitalism works right now is not working um, with the well-being of people and the planet in mind. And 
I think that we definitely need to do something in order to kind of check those unchecked boxes that um, happens a lot in capitalistic societies. There's like the phrase of unchecked capitalism goes on a lot and I think that that is really hurting us as a society. Um, I think that the system that we have now is a system that puts profit over people and doesn't put the well-being of people on the planet in mind and I think it is a system that is really extractivist um, and I think that in order to work towards a better world we're going to have to really think about in what ways we can we can rethink this economy there's like a, a few examples of things that we've talked about in our panels one is like the donut economy how can our resources be reused and like cycled in into a donut mm. instead of just wasted those like models are really cool it's also just really cool for me personally to see other models out there um to see what can really happen and i know that there's like regions that have incorporated aspects of the donut economy mm. and also just looking at like how different how different countries, different cultures and stuff can kind of incorporate their own practices or their own, yeah, like communal economic practices within the bigger system. Because I think as as it has now, capitalism, unchecked capitalism, almost like universalizes the way that we like trade and things like that. And so just, just like thinking in a sense of like cultural diversity and things like that, not being an, econo uh, an economy expert. Um, like finding a way to incorporate our cultural differences and yeah our traditional practices into the larger kind of market system mm. I think it would also be like an interesting thing but definitely for for me um the way that capitalism functions now is not working at the benefit it's not working for the well-being of people on the planet and I think that that's that's something that a lot of people are coming into consciousness with and so I think that in the public se sector a lot of people in the private sector um are coming into consciousness with that and so I, I think that that's like kind of a plus that people do see that there does need to be a change. Mm. I think you're right and there definitely seems to be a shift in terms of the values that people are espousing especially in younger generations in terms of what they value what they hold dear uh, and a willingness to stand up for a future that is kind of unraveling almost in in front of their eyes do you think that do you think we're seeing a deeper shift in terms of the values that we hold i do see a, a deeper shift or at least uh, this is my idealistic side i do <laughs> think that there's a uh, a deeper shift in the values i think that this kind of even goes back to what i was saying about one of the big challenges for me is like our individualistic culture because i think that has a lot to do with values mm. and so then when i see when I do see these shifts of values, it does make me have hope. I see, like, I see even, for example, um, people just even more conscious with the things that they buy. Um, more people are looking to buy locally and things like that. Or even just, like, looking into the companies that you're buying from. Yeah. All of those things, I feel like, are, like, good steps. And then holding those companies accountable to, like, what can the companies do to change? I think companies are also... At least from what I've seen, some companies are also kind of looking at the values that they hold and seeing what they can change about it and like what they can do in order to contribute to a better world or a world that puts well-being um, of the people on the planet first. Mm. So given, given the work that you're doing and all the work that you have been doing with communication and with stories and um, documenting people's experiences, 
Um, what would you like to imagine your legacy to be? Say we fast forward until you've lived a long and healthy and fascinating life. <laughs> what would you like to leave behind? Well, my legacy. <laughs> um, <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. I mean, I do hope that I was also just reading this. Oh, man, this is going to sound so morbid. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I was reading another book about uh, this, like, witch in colonial times um, mm-hmm. and how she, her mom died and her dad, dad died and the person who raised her died. Um, and she was talking about death and she was saying that, you know, people only die when you forget them or mm-hmm. when you don't hold their memories um, to you and so I was thinking about like I hope that my leg my legacy exists in the sense that like the spirit of like at least my spirit but the spirit in general of like storytelling personally like my way of storytelling is really it really gets into kind of making these complicated issues more accessible and also mm. kind of connecting a lot of different issues together I really like that type of storytelling and Mm -hmm. so I hope that that legacy my legacy of doing that kind of stays for a while and I hope that just that legacy in general for me it's it's all about like connecting different issues making I think that a lot of the times when we talk about like making visible invisible issues a lot of times it's just connecting it with something that it's been connected with Mm. um like a bigger issue that it's been connected with that we just didn't realize before and so for me that that's like a really big thing and i hope that in my legacy people see that 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 was my intention in my storytelling Mm. was trying to connect different issues together weaving together these different stories too not only issues but also stories sounds like a beautiful legacy (laughs) so we're coming close to time and i have two final questions that I'd like to ask you. The first one, which is a little one, um, is what question do you want people to dwell with at this moment? I want people to dwell with, this is probably a simple question, but I want people to think about where do they feel most safe? Um, Hmm. And it doesn't have to be a place. It could be something that you do or, or something that, or a person or something that you read maybe. But yeah, where do you feel most safe? It's mm. a beautiful question to ask people. Um, and then finally, uh, finally, as if this is an easy question <laughs> to capture with a simple answer, but what vision of the world are you holding for other people? I think I'm holding, I think my vision of the world that I would like to work toward um, does go in line too with kind of the vision of what an ecological civilization is and that's my vision of the world is a world where where people um and people of all different shades all different cultures all different diversities can live in harmony with the planet um can live in a self-sustaining a sustainable world a self-sustaining world and and also just like a a world where people have like a, a deeper relationship with our world and where people know that, you know, we're taking care of the world as much as the world is taking care of us. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating or review as it helps to reach new ears. 
My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.